More than 20 years after signing up to the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, New Zealand is being accused of continuing to let its children down. Despite many children doing well, the government is said to be failing to live up to its obligations to support all the nation's young and help them live happy and healthy lives. This RNZ Insight programme explores what's going wrong. Um, as you can see, if I move a couple of things here, I have sellotaped every groove behind the cupboard because of cockroaches and spiders getting into our food cupboard. In Tatahi Bay, north of Wellington, Polly lives with her 15-year-old son and 7-year-old daughter. She is convinced the lack of insulation and affordable heating in the rental home she's living in is making her family ill. Very cold in the winter. I, for example, sometimes I'm afraid to take my shoes off when I go to bed. I sometimes sleep with my shoes and socks on because it's that cold. Since we've moved in this house, we've had bronchial problems, respiratory problems, uh, health hospital admissions... Very severe, very severe, and it's quite worrying actually, and I feel if I did actually move, it would make a big impact on their health. But hospital admissions for what, severe asthma attacks or something else? Asthma attacks, um, via cold and um, bronchial. He just needs to catch cold and brings it on. The housing New Zealand property has a fireplace, but she says she can't afford the wood as she's on a benefit and relies instead on one oil heater given to her by a friend at church. Her children, especially her son, have missed out on a lot of school because of illness. The Convention on the Rights of the Child sets out how state parties must ensure that all children have a right to a standard of living that's good enough to meet their physical and mental needs. They should also have access to services such as education and health care and be helped to grow up in a happy environment. UNICEF's National Advocacy Manager Deborah Morris-Travers says nations, including New Zealand, were aiming for the best for their children when they signed the convention. It's the most widely signed convention of all of them and that really speaks to the importance that governments and societies place on children. I think that there was a hope that through signing up to a set of international standards that all governments would improve the way that they were delivering for children. And I think in New Zealand's, in the New Zealand government thinking partly there was a sense that actually we already complied on a lot of fronts and therefore it was easy enough for us to sign up to that convention. In reality though we know that there are a number of areas that New Zealand is in breach of the convention and continued work has to go into implementing it so that children do well. But with an estimated 260,000 children said to be living in poverty and some of its health statistics making New Zealand stand out from its OECD colleagues and all the ways, how well is the country doing in living up to its pledges? I'm Philippa Tolley and this insight explores what's holding some children back as well as possible solutions. We live in a five-bedroom home, housing New Zealand, and I have seven children plus myself and my partner. And what age is your children? Uh, they range from 16 years old down to three. And they all go to school locally? It's within walking distance of school here? Not walking distance, but they do go to put it all schools. They go to Catholic schools just down the road. Elsie isn't working at the moment, but cares for her partner who suffers from diabetes and severe psoriasis, six of their children and a nephew. She had been working night shifts, but lost her job after having to take time off for a back injury. Because right now, since I've been out of work for two months, it's just made us really struggle, so... That's what makes me want to go and work, to make a, a better life for me and my family. 
The expert advisory group on solutions to child poverty says 260,000 children are in poverty using the measurement that works out household incomes after housing costs. The convention states the government should provide extra money to help families in need, but whether New Zealand ever expected to take much extra action when it signed on 20 years ago is open to debate. The Dean of Otago University's law faculty, Mark Hennehan, believes New Zealand was acting as a good international citizen by signing the convention. We thought that we were in a pretty strong position in terms of signing up, and I think um, we did well on lots of, uh, of lots of indicators. So I, I would have thought at the time, both in terms of inter- being a good international citizen and also in terms of what we were doing as a country, I think the, uh, the government at the time would have thought this was a, a really good thing to do. It does have international repercussions. Obviously, the convention itself cannot enforce things to happen here, and countries are entitled to take reservations, and it is a form of accountability. Professor Hennehan has contributed to NGO submissions to the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child and says the aims of the convention are a constant benchmark, while domestically policies may change. And it's difficult for government too, it's difficult for both sides, because funding comes and goes and they, and they set up a good programme. We had a great programme, for example, of child advocates around the country to work with youth who are in difficulties, and then that suddenly closes down and money goes somewhere else. Uh, we've got a great uh, programme down here in Dunedin called the Youth Wellness Trust that was funded um, um, initially, and, and it really helps a wraparound service for children who are struggling at school, and it's, it's struggling now to get appropriate funding to keep it going. So each group really works hard. They work long hours for, for, for very little remuneration and they make a big difference. But it's a, tough, it's a tough game for them. In 2008, the Living Standards Survey for the Ministry of Social Development indicated that more than 50% of Pacific children and nearly 40% of Māori children up to the age of seven were in families experiencing material hardship. That means they were exposed more to money-saving efforts such as wearing worn-out shoes or clothing, sharing a bed or bedroom, cutting back on fresh fruit and vegetables and postponing doctor's visits because of cost. At Elsie's home, her husband is largely bedridden, but her children also suffer illness and she says it's difficult to keep the house warm. I have two children with asthma and two kids with eczema. And plus, a few of my children have been suffering from respiratory problems. And that wasn't me picking that up. It was the doctors from the school that they attend. So not just asthma, but what, getting chest infections and things like that? Yeah, and um, asking me where do they sleep and what is recommended for them. So I try my best just to have their rooms all warm in that. So the heater that I had, one of the heaters... I share it around with them just to warm up their rooms because that was recommended from the doctor just to warm their rooms up a bit. The two children that got asthma, how, how bad is that? Is it just a, a mild case or is it something that affects them all the time? My daughter who has asthma, she has it real bad. It affects her schooling. She's hardly been to school. Um, it's been like that since she attended preschool right up to now she's at intermediate. Some of the statistics on children's health still make for grim reading, despite a range of efforts to improve them. Figures from a report just released by Environmental Science Research states that compared with other OECD countries, New Zealand has strikingly high rates of acute rheumatic fever and rheumatic heart disease. While there are targeted programs underway, last year there were 143 new cases of acute rheumatic fever, 83 of those affected aged between 1 and 5. The illness, associated with environmental factors including poverty and household overcrowding, can take on average up to 17 years off a person's life expectancy and comes with significant medical and care costs.
Elsie showed me around the family home as a smoke alarm beeped in the background. She said she'd been waiting several weeks for a new battery. Yeah, to our 13-year-old, and here with one of her brothers, her younger brothers. So you got um, either three kids will sit in here and um, share a room, or sometimes you get four. So why do they want to share a room, or is it is it you think it's a good idea for them to be all together? Not a good idea, it's just because to keep warm, and plus they like to keep a, an eye on their younger siblings, so they all bunk in there. The 2014 Child Poverty Technical Report says that on average 40,000 children are admitted to hospital every year with sicknesses associated with their socio-economic situation, mostly respiratory illness and skin infections. The same report states that 127 children between the ages of 0 and 14 died of medical conditions or accidents somehow associated with their living conditions or family life. Amanda D'Souza is a public health physician at Otago University in Wellington, where she researches children and public policy processes. She says not only are some children struggling with modern health issues, such as obesity, but also the infections that plagued communities in the past that are becoming less common in other nations. In the early 1990s, our rates of childhood poverty, so children living in houses that simply don't have enough access to income and other financial resources to provide a basic standard of living and ability to participate um, in society, our poverty rates really increased. And that has a really major effect in shaping our exposure to infectious disease and our ability to respond to infectious disease. So, for example, if in a chronically stressed state, <laughs> that has an impact, as well as a greater exposure from, for example, overcrowding. The lack of progress on some areas means that for Amanda D'Souza, action is crucial. We know that poverty is incredibly damaging for children in multiple aspects of life. Now, I understand that um, it's very difficult for politicians to act on, on, on certain issues, but this is a really serious health-damaging exposure that over a quarter of our children are exposed to, to some extent. And for her, the path ahead for New Zealand rests on making the right decisions. Fundamentally, it is about deciding that, as a country, we want to do the best for our children because they matter as individuals in their own right and because it's really important for our country um, in the future. UNICEF is now launching a campaign called Make My Future Fair to try to focus attention on the needs of children. Its national advocate, Deborah Morris-Travers, argues one of the steps forward would be a voice for the child in the government process with a minister at cabinet level and a ministry to make sure children are considered at every step. Within government, there's, there hasn't been a permanent coordinating mechanism or a way to really coordinate the delivery of policy and practice for children and to make sure that we're up to scratch when it comes to the Convention on the Rights of the Child. So things have been a bit haphazard and piecemeal. I think we still do see a bit of that uh, within government. Um, there's been no national plan, and the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child has called repeatedly for New Zealand to have a national plan that's universal for all children and through that plan and through universal provision for our children we can then provide additional targeted support for those families that need it. Windley School in Cannons Creek has a role of more than 300 and with a decile one ranking serves one of the poorest communities in the country. 
Uh, at the moment we have athletics, so our kids are out and about. Um, the attendance for athletics has been great. We've got families down here, uh, and it's a great start to have parents come down and look at their kids running and trying things and stuff. Uh, it's a great opportunity for teachers to make connections with those parents, and uh, it's great for the kids to see their parents um, take a real interest by coming actually coming into school. Now that can be a challenge in itself, eh? You know, getting parents into school. And when the kids see their parents there, they they just glow, some of them, you know, they just beam, big smiles on their faces. It's a good day for the principal, Rhys McKinley, when parents are at school and involved in their children's education. But like other schools in the area, the children here struggle with a range of chronic ailments. Respiratory problems such as reoccurring chest infections, asthma and skin infections, all of which are likely to spread more easily if family members sleep together in one room to keep warm, are common. Rhys McKinley often visits parents to try to sort out what's going on when children are frequently absent from school or away for long periods. He describes a typical home. And the houses that I go to, sometimes it's overgrown, the entrance is overgrown, there are steps to the house, so you could have to, if you've got five kids and they're all under the age of ten, and then you've got groceries and things to move from your car to your house, you've got quite a distance and quite a, you know, you've got children in prams and pushchairs and things like that. You know, it becomes perhaps a big hassle just to get in and out of the place. The other thing I notice as I approach the home is physically it's um, often in a bad situation, like uh, it might have extremely long grass or might be overgrown or it might have big trees around it, that, uh, so there's, sun, there's no sunlight coming through. It may be facing the south, so it gets the extreme cold. When I get to the doorway, sometimes the door doesn't work. <laughs> the latch on the door doesn't quite work, so I have to go to the other door. There may be broken windows. Uh, one particular house that I went to, the, uh, she has four children and a baby, under two I think she was, and the door was broken, windows were broken, uh, there was paper over the windows, and when, when you go inside there's no flooring, so it's uh, floorboards, and it's three level house, uh, we went into the kitchen, there was one light over the, ki- over the kitchen table, uh, there's no lighting in the hallway, there's no heating in the kitchen, there was a mattress and mats in the lounge, and there was a TV in the lounge and the, most of the children were watching TV. He says it's a struggle for the mother, a single parent, to get the children to school on time as they need to be dropped off at their grandmother's so that the mother can work. Rhys McKinley says the school has a breakfast club to make sure all the children start the day with a full stomach and about 60 turn up regularly. But the same pupils that are often late or absent also can't get there in time for the morning meal. As another option, the school also offers lunch. And we thought we'd try lunch on Mondays because that was a high absentee day. I haven't checked the stats out yet, but I'm hoping that because we provided a hot lunch on the Monday that we have a a, a higher attendance on Mondays. Um, We're looking at, if that works, we're going to look at other days that we can try it. So so at this point it's only Monday because that's what's available to us. Uh, We actually have run out of room for having breakfast, uh, lunch, so we can't do that this term. Uh, but we're likely to be starting it up next and year. Do you have similar numbers, you think, doing lunch as well? We have a huge amount of children turned up for lunch. Especially even if, more. Especially if it's curry. <laughs> the attendance figures for the school last term sat at 88%, compared with 94% nationally. Attendance was worst in years one and two. 
At 84%, that means children are missing almost a day every week. But even more sobering is the fact that Winley School sits fourth from the top for attendance figures in Porirua East, which means seven or eight schools are ranked even lower. Rhys McKinley says the effect of continued school absences on a child's education is long-term and does little to break the poverty cycle. There are some children who uh, leave our school uh, at an extremely low level, uh, curriculum level one in some cases. Which is? Which is for five and six-year-olds, seven perhaps. You know, So, so that can be an 11 age. or 12-year-old with ability of much lower. Yep, that's right. Uh, some of that is through uh, family life, some of it is through us not being able to engage that child and not trying perhaps enough alternatives to try and get that child moving. Uh, some of it is due to the child themselves, but there's more that our school can do that will raise that child's achievement. And one of the things we are trying to do is through the Pacifica plan is engage families and the Tatai Apple one engaged Māori families. Louise Green, the president of the largest education union, the NZEI, says many people think the schools are there to provide teaching and all the children need to do is turn up. But she argues the reality in many parts of New Zealand is far more complex. It's very easy to say this is God's own, there's no reason, and be very judgmental about it. The bottom line is there are 260,000 children living in New Zealand through no fault of their own who are living in poverty, who can't get to school for one reason or another, um, who don't get to the doctors for one reason or, or another, who live in homes that are damp and cause illness, um, who can't have or don't get good food for whatever reason, without being judgmental, the reality is we still have 260,000 children and that's too many. We shouldn't have any. Despite the commitments under the convention to uphold a child's right to an education, she says New Zealand lags behind other nations in the money it's prepared to invest. She's excited that many communities are developing innovative solutions that are achieving results, but more is needed. In New Zealand, we are below the OECD average for what we spend on education, and yet we achieve above. So that, that gives us an indication that you know, we could do more in the spending aspect, but equally we need to work with others to actually respond to some of the needs that we have. Um, we can learn from each other, we can work together in our communities to address the needs and maybe have some economies of scale and things like that, but I think we have to be really um, broad thinking, innovative. Um, you know, we're told by the government that there is no more money um, and that we're expected really to do more with the same and in some cases do more with less. Well, that's not going to cut it. We need to pull together the resources from, from different uh, ministries, for example, and actually use those in a way that meet the needs of those children. And like others, Louise Green wants every pending decision and each policy under development to be considered for the effect they might have on children. People tend to work in silos. Everybody thinks what they do is really, really important. What we have to start doing in New Zealand is putting the child at the centre and actually think about what's in the best interests of that child and his, his or her family rather than this is what I do and this is my pot of money and this is how I'm going to do it. So let's, let's focus on what the issue is. The issue is children and what's happening for them. So put the child at the centre and bring the resources around to support that child and let's get over ourselves as adults.
Under the Convention, state parties are obliged to report on progress to a UN committee every five years and are later questioned over their submissions. A report was sent earlier this year from the Ministry of Social Development that said progress was being made in protecting the most vulnerable children in New Zealand and highlighting health developments such as extending free doctor's visits and prescriptions up to the age of 13. Despite those steps, Deborah Morris-Travers says children living across the Tasman still appear generally to do better. No countries have got this absolutely right, but we do know that every year in New Zealand, 84 babies are born who won't make it to the age of five, but they would if they lived in Australia. And that's primarily due to the fact that uh, you know, we have a high accident rate for our children in New Zealand, so things like you know, deaths in driveways or car accidents and other things. But also we have high rates of infectious diseases and high rates of child abuse. So uh, when we look at Australia, there are a few things going on there. They have a slightly lower rate of sole parenthood than we do. Uh, they also have um, quite comprehensive provision for families. So, um, you know, uh, 18 weeks of paid parental leave, um, you know, payments to families that are close to universal with some additional supplementary and targeted um, support that's available to them. Their climate and the standard of their housing are likely to be uh, part of the picture. Uh, so it's a variety of things that do contribute to the well-being of children, but it's very clear that New Zealand is not doing as well as it could be. When the government last appeared before the committee in 2011, it was urged to take action to help children in vulnerable situations and to help parents to do their best in bringing up their children. It was asked to urgently deal with the disparities in access to services for Māori children. In the last week, the Salvation Army demanded a new law to make sure all children have a legal right to adequate housing, after a three-month survey in Auckland found children have been sleeping in cars, garages and in the open air. A legal step-up from the obligations New Zealand has under the Convention. I sought reaction to some of the questions and solutions brought up in this programme from the Minister for Social Development, Anne Tolley. The response delivered by her staff was that the Minister was not available and has nothing further to add to the submission already written by the Ministry. In day-to-day -day life, those working with children are continuing to try to find their own solutions. As a principal, Rhys McKinley sees his students facing an ever more challenging environment. It's actually becoming more complex and more complicated around just having an everyday normal life, I think, for some of our children in particular children who come to our school, I think it's become much more challenging. And I think it's not as simple as uh, Housing New Zealand making warmer houses. It's not just as simple as that. It's around education and knowing what to do when things start going wrong, uh, being proactive as a family. I don't think some of our children who are living in conditions emotionally and physically in conditions that are stressful I don't think that is a strong base for children to grow. Given the complexities involved, many might argue over whether there's any point in being part of a United Nations agreement such as a convention on the rights of the child. But the Dean of Otago University's law faculty, Professor Mark Hennehan, sees the convention as one more chance to push children's welfare to the centre stage and wants every opportunity to be seized.
basically it gives a chance for NGOs to give a voice. It, it, government have declared they're going to have an action plan. They have declared they're going to involve children more. They have declared they're going to do more about protecting children from abuse and neglect. They have declared they're going to do more for child health. They have declared they're going to do more for child poverty. So I, I think then it's up to politicians on, on all sides of the House and, and citizens to say, look, we, we've said we're going to do this. Uh, let's get on with it. I think uh, words on paper only become action if people themselves mobilise themselves to say we want the government to do this. The government will only do what it thinks it needs to do to stay in power. That's the reality of politics, and that's either side. I'm not saying any particular government is... That's the reality of politics. It's, it's, a, it's a business where the reality is you've got to get votes. And if doing these things for children, if everyone in this country said, look, we'll only vote for the party that will do these things for children, then they would do them tomorrow. And so they'll be testing the water to see how much they have to do and how much they will spend to see whether it will be politically feasible. So that's where the accountability comes. But we are citizens, and that's why it's important to have to really put the pressure on. The UN, the UN committee, as you, as you rightly said, can write reports, but they can be ignored, and some countries may, may ignore them. We have to now put the pressure on and through, through all sorts of organisations and the, and, and the communities we live in to say, we really don't want some children to have health problems when they're young. Rheumatic fever, which is just unbelievable in a country like New Zealand. We don't want children to be in poor housing. We don't want children to drop out of school and no one care about them and no one follow up and do some intensive work to get them back into school so they can become productive citizens. We don't want that to happen. And there are people saying these things, we just got to have more of them so the politicians say, oh, right, we've got to do something about that. So when it comes down to making a choice, would New Zealanders vote for more money to be invested in children's well-being rather than on more tax cuts? UNICEF's Deborah Morris-Travers hopes the tide of public opinion is turning. In 2010, the government cut taxes by a billion dollars per annum. And you know, UNICEF and other organisations who are working for children are saying, actually, we need an investment in our children of about a billion dollars. Um, you know, so uh, I, I think that there, there will always be those who will be interested in themselves first. Uh, you know, and we do have, uh, well, and we certainly have had now for about 30 years, a kind of movement towards a more individualistic society. But think for a moment of those children who are living in cold, damp houses without even a pair of socks to put on, um, you know, perhaps with parents who are also, uh, you know, the, the, they've grown up with disadvantage and poverty and low levels of education themselves. And we are continuing at the moment to create a cycle of disadvantage that's enormously costly, costing the nation about $10 billion a year. Um, but also, you know, socially and morally, it's unjust. So whichever way you look at it, either economically or, you know, or, or through a social justice lens, we've got a significant issue that we've got to be prepared to address. And um, you know, I think that people are starting to understand that. Back in Waitangi Rua, Elsie frets about what's next for her children, especially when they've missed so much through sickness. Because I want my kids to succeed in school and go a long way because I don't want them to experience what I went through when I was younger, which I didn't attend school regularly. In Tatahi Bay, Polly is struggling to see a way to a better future. It's quite gloomy for me. Yes, it's brought um, a lot of depression in my life living in this home, feeling as though there's no hope for us. Um, f um, living with this, the bare skin of my butt, basically, just to get by every day. And fight for what we're actually entitled to, a happy environment, something healthy, a healthy environment, really. Is, is that much to ask? The government is due to be asked questions on its report to the UN Committee early next year. I'm Philippa Tolley and that's Insight for this week. 
If you have any thoughts, it would be great to hear from you. You can contact us on email at insight at radioNZ.co.nz. Our Twitter handle is rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented that program. It was produced by Gail Woods and Megan Whelan with technical production by Dan Bevan.